0: There are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. Organized and produced the recording of "Do They Know It's Christmas," kicking off a charitable effort to help relieve famine in Africa. While South African Archbishop Desmond Tutu was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, it was the end of an era as Howard Cosell retired from Monday Night Football, and Margaret Thatcher signed the Sino-British Joint Declaration, paving the way for Hong Kong to be returned to China's control in 1997. <laughs> Rick Allen, better known as the drummer for Def Leppard, lost his arm in a car crash while in New York. A guy named Bernie Getz decided that Charles Bronson movies were real life and shot four muggers on a New York subway car. Shit was getting crazy as the year wound down in December of 1984. Hey everybody, I'm Drew McWeeny, and welcome to 80s All Over. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host Scott Weinberg. What's up, Scott?
1: Hello, Drew. Welcome to the end of 1984. One of the very best years of the decade.
0: Now, have you have you done your top 10 yet? No,
1: I have not yet.
0: Oh, it's a torture.
1: After uh, <laughs> we're done recording this, I'll go through and break down my list of like 30. And then I will torture myself by uh, paring it down to 10. Oh, it's tough. I, I will spoil one thing for our listeners. I think the Terminator might be on my list.
0: Ah. So listen, um, I made a mistake. uh I did. Say oops upside your head. Say oops upside your head. Hey. Paris, Texas is not heading back to theaters, so I feel really bad that you guys showed up money in hand, screaming, Scott and Drew just told me Paris, Texas is awesome. Where's the theater? Drew, Drew told them that, and I believed them. Wings of Desire is actually getting the 4K restoration, another Ven Vendors classic. Don't you ever get tired of being wrong? I'm just a giant dum-dum, and uh, you know, it's the enthusiasm that counts. I'm just, I'm excited to be dumb. I will, however, use this moment to announce that a movie that we talked about here that was wildly unavailable called Say Amen Somebody – is premiering at the Berlin Film Festival with a new 4K restoration. And then I assume there will be plans to put that out. Uh, That is a movie that has largely been unseen for 30 years. And I just talked to the distributor about it. A big part of the reason why it was a priority for them was that Roger Ebert screening that I talked about on the show. This is a great movie. I'm excited you guys are going to get a chance to see it finally.
1: And we have a super secret re-release. Uh-oh. Drew, I hope it's a film you're prepared to talk about because it's a surprise. Ready? Ready? Pin, Pinot, Pinoc, Pinocchio.
0: Oh, Pinocchio! You got to say it right. I don't follow Italian cinema,
1: so I don't know Pinoc- Pinocchio.
2: Walt Disney's Pinocchio, a movie that comes around every seven years, a magic that lasts a lifetime. Yep. Rated G. Opens Friday at a yep. theater near you. Check local listings.
0: The, I used to do a rant when I was probably this age, where I would talk about how the monstro chase in Pinocchio was just as good as the truck chase in Raiders of the Lost Ark, and I still believe that. But I'm not going to do the whole shtick at this point. It may be my favorite of the classic era Walt Disney fairy tale movies. It's, uh, yeah, it's up there for
1: me as well. I, I still think Sleeping Beauty gets me because it is literally. The most beautiful American produced animated film ever made.
0: I love the world of Pinocchio, though. I love the shitty animals who are constantly trying to hustle Pinocchio. It sounds like I'm going to start rapping here, but I'm not. It's the scale of the whale. It's the artistry of Pinocchio that gets me over and over. And there's there's a book called Illusion of Life, the all encompassing Bible of Disney animation. And there's a sequence they break down in there where Pinocchio is marching through the town behind the two uh, shady animal friends of his. It's like a long shot from above and you see the whole city street and they walk down one street and they go around a corner and they come down another and the camera moves. It's an impossible move. So they had to draw each beat of it.
1: Just imagine that you're doing like a whip pan with a camera, but now you're animating
0: a whip pan. I mean, it just blows my mind to look at. And it's one of those moments you realize these guys were inventing it. They had to figure out what is this? How do you even, I am blown away. I look at Pinocchio now and I still think it is magic that it all looks as good as it does.
1: You know what else is magic? Uh, what? Mary Lou Henner co-star, no argument of Amy Heckerling's uneven, but still amiable Johnny dangerously.
2: the tuxedo michael uptown keaton versus joe downtown piscopo he's sexy suave sophisticated he's not keaton versus piscopo you see that it's the funniest fight of the year you shouldn't hang me on a hook johnny dangerously rated pg-13 now playing at a selected theater near you
0: This is one of those films that I think people have a lot of affection for, and I don't want to trample on that affection. I think you described it as uneven, and I think that's a fair assessment of it. There's an ambition to the world here, and I think when Heckerling's spinning on all cylinders, she gets a lot of it right. And I do think there's stuff in Johnny Dangerously that is fun and works and There's a reason people have a soft spot for it.
1: It's not as consistently funny as an airplane or a top secret, which is clearly what it's going for. It wants to be a 30s gangster movie version uh, of those. Part of the reason is because apparently Amy Heckerling is a big fan of 30s and 40s gangster movies. It almost seems like sometimes she and this is a compliment. She almost forgets she's doing a comedy. I think this person would rather be directing an actual gangster movie.
0: One of the things that I want to give heckling props for is the uh, production of the film is all on studio backlots. And like Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, there is a sense that the person who made it really lives and breathes this stuff and does have a fondness for it. And I think that goes a long way with this kind of comedy. I'm willing to give her the I didn't laugh out loud, but I smiled a lot. And still that's okay. Yeah, clearly it was a lot funnier back in 1984 because a uh, I was
1: younger and B you know we well I was younger let's just
0: I gotta give uh, Richard Dimitri props. I still swear like him. I will with the boys especially Fargan Isol and you summon a beach I love swearing like him it's just silly
1: Where would you put this on Michael Keaton's like path to stardom?
0: It's important because it was a showcase for him. This was sold to us on Michael Keaton. You know what,
1: though, Drew? As much as I know we both love Michael Keaton, I don't think this kind of stuff is his type of comedy.
0: I think you're right. But I do think this was one where they really leaned on him in the ads and leaned on him as Michael Keaton is a star now, right? You guys want to come see a Michael Keaton movie. And for me at 14, the answer was a resounding yes, I did. I was all in and I was ready for him to be a movie star.
1: Joe Piscopo as Danny Vermin.
0: Who's not? Who's in it a lot less than I remember. But he is, I think, well used. One of the things this movie got right that a lot of directors just couldn't figure out is Piscopo's not terribly likable. He's pretty good if you're going to cast menacing or weird because he's a weird dude.
1: Griffin Dunn as Johnny's little brother.
0: His moment in the movie is when he tells Johnny why he needs to get married. And that moment in the film that Johnny shows him was probably the thing that I remembered the most vividly and that my friends and I talked about the most frequently.
1: Drew, I want to talk real quick. Mary Lou Henner, obviously a big star from Taxi why was she not a bigger movie star? Do you think? I
0: don't know. I really would have expected her to jump to film, but I think TV has been where she's traditionally just been better served.
1: The highlight of the film, for my money, the best performance in the entire movie. Everything she says almost is funny. Maureen Stapleton as Johnny's mom. She is so funny. She gets the tone of this movie, even if not everyone else does. I wish I could say that it holds up as like consistently funny as Top Secret, but it's not. It's scattershot but it's very likable. So
0: and it's got a great theme song by Weird
2: Al.
1: So let us now move on to another comedy.
0: Also with a Weird Al theme song. It's
1: Diane Keaton and Mel Gibson, Mrs. Sofel.
2: He was a condemned man. She was the warden's wife. He was behind bars, but she was the real prisoner. Mrs. Sofel, powerfully acted. Diane Keaton and Mel Gibson breathe fire. New York Post. The year's most poetic love story adds the village voice. Mrs. Sofel, a true story. Rated PG-13.
0: I don't want to just beat this film up, but it's a dreary experience. It's a rough sit. Jillian Armstrong was coming off of My Brilliant Career and then Starstruck, which I think both of those back-to-back terrific movies. This is one of those moments where Hollywood gets hold of somebody, and then the thing that comes out of them is a brick wall that they hit.
1: Oh, wow. You think it's a whole wall?
0: Uh, This is bad news, man.
1: They're just the lead characters are so uninteresting. You know, who's more interesting, the warden played by Edward Herman and, and Mel Gibson's brother. Played by Matthew Modine. Those two
0: supporting characters are infinitely more interesting than this couple. The way I think it's trying to play it is that she is somewhat sheltered and up her own ass. You know, she goes to the prison to read Bible stories to them and she believes she's helping and she's full of shit. And the prisoners roll their eyes behind her back. Like, that's who I think she is at the beginning of this. And I think you're meant to wonder how much is a game, how much is real, how much on her part is she's just naive, how much is real chemistry. That sounds like a movie I'd be interested in. None of that actually plays.
1: Yes, but it's not. It's just a very conventional doomed romance. Gibson is weirdly miscast. You got to flip those two. You put Matthew Modine in his role, That that's already a better film.
0: It's an ugly visual experience. It's a really difficult sit just visually. It's really rough.
1: You you could not have set me up for a better segue. You know what else is ridiculously ugly to look at? (laughs) This unwatchable horror film. It's called The Initiation.
2: Before the initiation begins, the testing areas are selected. The sorority house, the sanitarium, the empty shopping mall, and just before the initiation begins, a toast is required and
1: to be young, staying young and dying young.
2: The initiation, the ceremony that will never die as long as new blood is pledged.
1: True, I don't think I've ever seen a film that had this many close ups in it.
0: Uh, first of all, you can tell he has no sense of visual language. There's nothing in this that would imply that he understands why a shot does what a shot does the cinematography in this movie feels like every time in ren and stimpy they would go to a close up of ren and stimpy and it would be this super detailed drawing of them that was intentionally super gross that's what this movie feels like then on top of that
1: oh don't you're not going to talk about the script are you
0: holy crap does the last 20 minutes of this film make you question why why you watch films? <laughs> it's it's i I can't believe this is the payoff to the movie that, and I get that, you know, at this point, slasher films are starting to think, okay, well, we've got to have a clever twist or we've got to add some other layer. Or we've got to do something. When they drop their final reveal, wow.
1: Although I would recommend that you, uh, if you have any interest in the initiation, I recommend you dig up our friend Eric D. Snyder's old review of it because he reviewed it for Eric's Pad movies, and it's very funny. So enjoy that. Now, Drew, what is the film that, the initiation reminded me of, and I emailed you and I said, did we ever cover
0: one dark night? Say oops upside your head. Say oops upside your head.
1: Say oops.
2: We know all about you, Julie, more than anything else. You want to belong just to be one of the gang. You've met every challenge. Now comes the final test. You didn't plan on. Julie, welcome to the club. See one dark night rated PG starts Friday at a theater near you.
0: It's really crazy that we missed this one because I remember watching it for the show. I don't know why we didn't talk about it.
1: It is a film from Tom McLaughlin, who would go on to direct one of the better Friday the 13th sequels that don't exist because we stopped after the final chapter. It's just crazy.
0: It's uh, most notable for some of the uh, familiar faces that are making very early appearances, Meg Tilly, E.G. Daly, and of course, uh, beloved icon Adam West.
1: Adam West is in this movie, folks.
0: As one of the teenage women.
1: And and the reason that I think that it reminded me of the initiation is because guess what? It's about an initiation and instead of having to go into a uh, department store. Yeah.
0: You're locked in a location overnight and it's very similar.
1: And let me tell you something, man, I I was in a fraternity and we did some silly stuff. Any party that requires you to sleep overnight in a crypt is not a group you want to be a part of. (laughs) All right. I'm just saying. All right, Drew, now we're going to cover a film that is unique and original. I think it's important. Hollywood is finally, setting its sights on the american farmer of the midwest finally and and drew let us now sit down and talk about the river
2: the river is a film for the millions who loved on golden pond the river is a great film full of passion and decency rex reed the new york post sissy spacek is superb scott glenn should be remembered at oscar time jack matthews usa today Mel Gibson and Sissy Spacek have great screen appeal. The river is a major achievement for Mark Rydell, William Wolf the newspapers. The river rated PG-13.
0: Yeah. Scott, we're going to play a little game called Farmer Movie Quiz. In one of these three films, there is a scene in which someone is pinned under farming equipment. Can you name that film?
1: Oh, dude, that's... Definitely places in the heart.
0: I'm sorry. Now that's the river. Okay. Scott, question number two, in one of these films, there is a scene where there is an auction of farming equipment and other farmers show up and won't bid on it because of solidarity with the farmer who's losing his equipment. Which film is this? That's country. I'm sorry. That's the river. Ah, You're doing so well. You're doing so well so far. Um, I think the point I'm making is they start to blur after a while. And I can understand why in 1984, there were a lot of conversations about how this happens at the studio level. My theory is, Whatever the newspaper article was, that got everybody talking in Los Angeles one week. I'm guessing that newspaper article had some of these details in it, like the auction or farming equipment or the way people were, the loans were starting to come because those details show up over and over. And clearly, those are the details that are meant to outrage you and provoke you and do. It's very much like the housing crisis that we just lived through, where people were essentially sold these loans that were too good to be true. And it's just awful watching families fall apart and watching an entire community go under. And I think this movie's biggest problem is that Mel Gibson does not feel like he's in the same movie as Sissy Spacek.
1: It's is another weird casting thing where it's Mel Gibson, who's obviously now movie star of the month. We just talked about Mrs. Sofal. Scott Glenn plays the third lead. And he's infinitely more interesting. You put Scott Glenn in the Mel Gibson role. And again, I'm not just trash. I you. think
0: there would be a terrific switch because Scott Glenn, suddenly you feel like that's a guy who spent his life doing this. Whatever Mel Gibson is, he's not an American farmer. He's just not.
1: And I'm not. Yeah, I know everyone thinks that it's like we're let, allowing history to just let's let's talk shit about Mel Gibson. No, he's done a lot of good work in this decade. I just think that when he's miscast,
0: he is miscast. And this is the follow-up to On Golden Pond from Mark Rydell. I always feel like that pressure makes you make movies that aren't necessarily you as much, whereas other films feel more natural and casual and character-driven. And this feels like there was an issue, not a character or a story. And, And look, Sissy Spacek is a great choice to play this character. And I think the fact that they flooded a real valley and some of this stuff is the scale it is. It's pretty amazing at times.
1: This film won a special Oscar for sound effects editing. And if I'm not mistaken, that might be the first time that award was given and it soon became a regular Oscar.
0: That makes sense because this is that moment where people are starting to really experiment with surround tracks and they're really starting to try to immerse you in stuff. And I can see that just on a technical scale, People working in the business would look at this and see some real breakthrough moments. Uh, I don't think it's a film that uh, that dates terribly well. I, I think has very little revisit value outside of its year.
1: All right, Drew. There's another great segue. A film that doesn't play as seriously as the filmmakers would have intended.
2: It is the future. Machines designed to serve humans are being programmed to turn against them. What about these chicks? Turn any domestic computer into a killing machine. Someone must stop the madman who started it all. Tom Selleck, Cynthia Rhodes, Gene Simmons. Run away. Now playing at a theater near you.
0: It's weird the way this film has kind of Fallen off of the radar and is largely forgotten, but yes, at one point was omnipresent. I saw this twice in theaters. I loved this
1: movie when I was 13.
0: Loved it. This feels like what a TriStar movie was in 1984, because TriStar, you got to remember, was still fairly new and they were trying to establish who they were. And I always loved companies at the beginning. I love DreamWorks in the early days of live action. I love touchstones early movies just because they're still trying to figure out who they are what are we doing what is our company and so TriStar movies felt like they were high concept and felt like they threw a lot of polish and stuff but it's polished in weird ways so they're slick but they're cheesy and boy it's a pretty good description of runaway
1: runaway is about a squad of cops in the near future who who run around and disable robots that have gone rogue?
0: I'm sorry, not rogue, runaway. Yeah, I've, I've been thinking about runaway a lot lately as we've been watching headlines as they've been testing robots in real field situations and they've been putting them to work, like the robot hotel that went haywire and they had to finally just say, all right, I guess it's not a robot hotel anymore.
1: A lot of this is hilariously cheesy and dated, but. It's still kind of fun.
0: I think kind of fun is exactly the right qualifier. It's kind of fun. And there's stuff like the bullets that r- register your DNA and they hunt just you down. That That's a goofy idea. And it's kind of goofy the way it's handled. But I remember loving this movie at 14. Watching it now. well, I'm Here's
1: a- what I don't get. Every robot in this movie is like a cardboard box with an extended <laughs> arm. That's basically right. Yeah. Except Gene Simmons has robot spiders, DNA bullets, I'm like thinking, wait, how does he have all this stuff? And if you have technology that's 10 times better than what the consumers do, why are you a villain?
0: Just sell it. Yeah, exactly. It's it's one of the classic weird things about Pulp Sci-Fi is you frequently have villains who could simply make all the money in the world by patenting their inventions as opposed to kidnapping the president's daughter. But, you know, they, they have to go the extra mile. Why do you think this movie made no money? There is so much science fiction this month. If you didn't make a... Really good movie. No traction at all.
1: No disrespect to the great uh, Michael Crichton as a novelist, a screenwriter, a director. He did a lot of great work, but I don't think working with relatively young actors was his strong suit. And there are a couple of moments in this movie where Kirstie Alley, I cannot fathom for the life of me how somebody on that set did not go, Cut, we're going to go again, Kirstie, because that, you were like cardboard.
0: Yeah, it feels like as long as the robot did what it was supposed to, print, move on. So, hey, Scott, I recently mentioned the title of our next film to my kids. The reaction I got from them blew my mind because they didn't believe it was a real film title. They simply assumed that this phrase was a joke that had been created and that nothing could actually be called Breaking 2 Electric Boogaloo. If you've never felt it before, you feel it now.
2: Break two, electric boogaloo. The ultimate breakers, Kelly, Ozone, and Turbo are back. For everyone who believes in the beat. And the beat's never been better. Break two, electric boogaloo, rated PG. Starts Wednesday
0: at a theater near you. I didn't realize that meme-wise, they don't even realize it's connected to anything anymore.
1: If only this was a podcast about the ignorance of your children. (laughs)
0: Oh, that's that's a separate podcast. I'm starting that one up soon.
1: Uh. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, like, well, but here's the question: How would your boys necessarily know that Breaking Two was
0: even a movie to begin with? Wouldn't and but it, it amazes me that Electric Boogaloo still has the legs it has. That that phrase now simply means goofy sequel.
1: This is ex- the same trio from the first film. It's uh, Lucinda Dickey, hot off, Ninja 3, of The Domination. Hiya!
0: Man, she was busy in 1984.
1: You know the cliche of we're going to have to save the kids' rec center? Which predates this movie, definitely. It goes back further than that. Oh, it goes
0: back to the 30s, dude.
1: This movie is literally about let's put on a show to save the kids' rec center. Where Breakin' was a bit more low-key. This is more elaborate. There are bigger numbers. The music is better in this one
2: party people in the place to be This is what you paid your money to see On the wheels of steel, G-L-O-V-E And the prince of charge, Africa, is live Now need the beast from the east and the best from the west And so when they go off and sound just like this
0: So one of the things that's striking me is we're watching all of these sort of 80s musicals They are all very old-fashioned. It feels like they took a script from the 30s, shook a little dust off, and went, I don't know, throw some rap music in it.
1: I had a ball. I watched these two movies a couple months ago, back-to-back. I enjoyed Breaking
0: 2 a lot more. This one is rewarding in the sense that when you get to those musical numbers, they're worthwhile. They are actually good musical numbers.
1: All right, so Drew, let's move on from a low-budget, high-energy musical to another one. It's Michael Radford's adaptation of... George Orwell's 1984.
2: Sex, sex, sex crime. In 1949, George Orwell had a vision of the future. Today, that vision is still a best-selling novel, and his prophecy remains as terrifying as ever. If you want a vision of the future, Winston, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. John Hurt. Susanna Hamilton, Cyril Cusack, and Richard Burton in the crowning role of
0: his career, the film of the book of the year. Hey, Scott, here's a question. Which movie is sexier, Mrs. Soful or 1984? Wow. Yeah, this movie's hot. Can we we just take a moment, and
1: I want everyone out there to think for a few seconds about how amazing John Hurt
0: was. And looked like he was designed for film. His face is one of film's great wonders. The
1: voice, he's got such a fragile humanity. And man, you need this kind of like haunted but human person. And I just,
0: without John Hurt, with a different actor, I think it might have been all for naught. I have a mixed relationship with the film. Rafford's a solid filmmaker. And his idea to do this as a science fiction film that very much looks and feels like it is set in the past. Works for the film for the most part. I think the things that Orwell wrote about in terms of media and in terms of the control of truth and the control of how information is uh, policed and how thought would be policed. Obviously, Orwell's a visionary. The science fiction remove of 1984, when I look at this movie now, is so the world is so squalid and it's so awful and it's so in your face ugly that it almost doesn't work for me anymore because I think it is more powerful when the world feels just on the verge of livable. It's, there's no carrot. It's all stick. I find the movie a really punishing sit. So did you see this in 1984 or were you? No, no, I had never seen this until recently.
1: Um, I, I never, I read the book in high school. I remember the key, you know, themes and, you know, enough to sound smart when I want to say Orwellian, But uh, I'd never seen this film.
0: I was obsessed because the soundtrack album by The Eurythmics was huge for me. I fucking love that album. But here's the thing in the movie. Now there's none of it. It's just gone. And the album itself, if you go to Spotify to search for it, good luck. It's not there. It's one of those albums that for whatever reason now is largely out of circulation and out of print. I love that music. Michael Radford didn't hire the Eurythmics, which is mind boggling to me. So when the Eurythmics turned their score in, Michael Radford rejected it. And They put out the album separately. The producers then fought with Michael Radford, and they kind of jammed some of it into the UK release, then took it out, then did some more for the US release, and then took it out for home video. The, The version that exists now has, I think, one track at the very end over the closing credits. Nothing else left. I have the weird relationship where I think the soundtrack is a better take on Orwell and a more interesting take. Whereas I think the Radford film is is just a downer. And I get it, 1984 is a downer, but the movie is so unrelentingly grim that I don't think it makes its points as well as it thinks it does.
1: So you prefer Terry Gilliam's version of 1984? Well, we're going to get into that, uh, yeah. Drew, let's talk about this real quick. Richard Burton, this was his final movie.
0: He is a good match for John Hurt, I think, in the scenes where it's the quiet back and forth. He's menacing, but without ladling it on. He's not playing it as a mustache twirling villain. The moment where he actually is revealed to be who he is, is my favorite moment in Radford's adaptation. And I think it's because that betrayal really plays. Hurt is broken by that betrayal.
1: Is it true that the film was shot in and around the exact locations on the same Time frame, as in the novel,
0: like yes, super important to Radford. He wanted to be shooting the movie at the moments that the book took place. Since they were shooting in 1984, he was able to tie it directly to the timetable in the original novel. Uh, look, I think Radford certainly approached this with every intent to make a definitive version. And I think for a second film, this is hugely ambitious and cost a fraction of what you think it does looking at it. It's certainly it's got a lot of muscle. So
1: Drew, let us now move on to a film that even though it's not good, I'm kind of surprised because I think it should be
2: better known. Clint Eastwood and Burt Reynolds in City Heat. Clint is a street smart flatfoot. foot. Burt is a wisecracking gumshoe. And together, the heat is on. Is this a private party or can anybody attend? I thought you were gonna set this one out. I lied. Clint Eastwood and Burt Reynolds in City Heat. Need we say more?
1: As madly in love as we were with Racing with the Moon and My Favorite Year director Richard Benjamin really not entirely his fault, but laid a big fat egg on his third directorial effort.
0: Yeah, but he walked into an impossible situation.
1: Blake Edwards, who wrote the film, was going to direct and he butted heads with Mr. Eastwood more than once and was summarily removed by the studio. And they uh, hired Richard
0: Benjamin, who had already directed two good films. So why not? Eastwood had a bad rep at this point for that, and this was right after Tightrope, and I think everybody in town knew the way that had gone down. Clinton had a real problem with the difference between being an actor in someone else's film and being the filmmaker.
1: Inert, it's like the best way to describe it. It's not even aggressively bad. It's just so blah.
0: One of them is a cop in Kansas City. One of them is a private detective who used to be a cop. They are both in love with the secretary Something that's simple, you start adding things in like Clint Eastwood and Burt Reynolds and suddenly it gets very complicated and everybody wants it to be their thing. And you've got a really able-supporting cast here with like Madeline Kahn and Rip Torn and Richard Roundtree. and Not one of them is given anything to put their teeth in. The movie stars are sucking all the oxygen out of the room, trying to outdo each other, but they're both so uninterested in looking like they're trying to outdo the other that they – It's insane. Like it's an insane, weird Richard
1: Roundtree is the far and away the most interesting character in the film. And guess what? He's the character who gets murdered and then they have to look into the murder. Rip Torn. How do you waste Rip Torn and Madeline Kahn? Are you kidding?
0: And Jane Alexander, who is delightful and awesome, is the perfect person to play the secretary who is between the two of them if it was written well. It's the Myrtle Loy character, and she if that movie, if they knew what they were doing, the movie would simply coast on getting the three of them to bounce off each other. Just have fun with it. Let it be effervescent and light. This movie needs to be light as air, and instead it's super violent in places. We're going to get to a movie a little later that surprised me because... I always thought of this other movie as the disaster set in this era that was leaden and didn't work at all. And it's actually pretty nimble and light on its feet. And how do you make a comedy with these guys at this point in their careers? And that's not the goal. I don't get it. If if this was
1: a play, it would close after two nights. But Blake Edwards was pissed off. So he took his name off the screenplay. The uh, surname that he chose was Sam O. Brown,
2: S.O.B.
0: So what movie did he go make instead, Scott?
2: Mickey and Maud. Rob is married to Mickey. He wants a child. Come on, Mickey. Just one child. A small one. She's too busy to make dinner. Just just hold on one second, darling, please. Let alone a baby. Enter Maud. Now he's got two wives. Mrs. Salinger. And two babies on the way. Rob will make a great father. If he survives, Mickey and Maud, Rated PG-13. Another Dudley Moore's dick comedy, Drew.
1: How many comedies have we now done that are about Dudley Moore's penis?
0: It cannot be big enough to justify this body of work.
1: I loved this movie when I was younger. Did you? I did. I swear to God I did. Wow. I, I remember seeing it opening weekend, and if you had asked me why, I probably would have pointed to... the the sequence that everybody points to. Dudley Moore plays a bigamist and both of his wives get pregnant at the same time and all the sitcom coincidences that you would expect
0: (laughs) then arise. I love how quickly you get to Dudley Moore plays a bigamist. The movie... Does not get there that quickly. (laughs) The movie takes about 45 to 55 minutes to explain why Dudley Moore is a bigamist.
1: Yeah, we have to Uh. give 40 minutes of shoe leather so that when he becomes a bigamist, we kind
0: of feel like, oh, he's not so bad. Nope. Totally unjustifiable and absolutely unforgivable. This is another one of those movies that hinges on somebody doing something where we're supposed to accept that Maybe, just maybe, somebody might, through good intentions, get... No, fuck Fuck you. you. Nobody gets cornered into this situation.
1: And then everybody in the audience is supposed to go, oh, he really shit all over two people, but he did it for a somewhat nice reason. He wanted a bait."
0: Nobody behaves like a human being in this movie.
1: This is not me being 2019 woke. This is just normal logic. His wife is about to become a major judge... And he whines at her about taking the job because he wants a baby. He's not this is not a movie that's trying to, like, flip gender roles and say, oh, see how it feels? We're honestly
0: supposed to empathize with him. (laughs) If you want to do the farce version of this, here's the farce version. My wife is very, very demanding. I'm very upset. I have a one time fling and she ends up pregnant just as my wife decides that we're going to have a baby there. Maybe I'm with you. It's an affair. It's a real relationship. And then they get pregnant. They
1: both catch him dead to rights. And then he says something like, oh, no, that was just, you know, a girl that I met at a coffee shop. And she uh, fell out of an airplane.
0: I don't know who that is. <laughs> this is my penis. <laughs> All right.
1: Wait, we, I want to preface this with we both like Dudley Moore, yeah, but not like this. In the first half of the 80s. Studios were still aping his 10 persona because they wanted to get another smash hit like 10. So they kept putting Dudley Moore in these sex farces, whether they fit him or not. And it was like, we're just going to keep trying until we hit 10. And they never did. No,
0: <laughs> they kept getting further and further away from it, too.
1: You know, the best way this movie could have ended <laughs> is this Amy Irving and Anne Rankin fell in love. The movie ends with him in jail weeping. Please send me one photo. No, no, He never makes it to
0: jail because Amy Irving's father sicks Andre the Giant on him and he pulls Dudley Moore's legs off and shoves them up his ass while Dudley Moore screams. But that's not the ending. The ending is the women then decide that they each want to be with him still and he shouldn't tell the other woman. So he ends up in another lie and then we flash forward and then it's keeps going and it keeps adding insane behavior by these people. Yo, Drew, here, think
1: of this thought. You have young boys. Imagine if this is the only film they've ever seen.
0: <laughs> the criminal charges that would be filed against me for that would be epic and wildly deserved.
1: Uh, lastly, Anne Ranking is a fascinating figure. She's a Tony Award winning stage performer and world renowned dancer. But her film work is basically what?
0: Annie? And this. This is the last movie she did until a documentary. I, she's great in this. Like, even when she's playing the, against this goofy, horny elf, I wish she had done more movies. The stuff they ask of her in the hospital is embarrassingly written. And I feel for her. I feel like this is one of those movies where no one got out okay. It really is no surprise to me that if this is your experience as a lead in a theatrical movie... Maybe it's just not your thing. Maybe you're just not going to do it.
1: Drew, later in this episode, we are going to close uh, with what I consider probably the finest, quote unquote, star vehicle ever. But now we're going to get to a Goldie Hawn one. And boy, we love Goldie Hawn. But Drew, there's almost nothing to protocol.
2: Hi, Grandma. Are you watching? She's running for office. Come on, can you be that dumb and run for office? To work for the State Department takes intelligence. Are you coming, here? Deficiency. Not quite, ma'am. Leadership. I got a camel. Or a lot of luck. Goldie's become a diplomat in Wait. protocol. This is a real natural high for me. Rated PG.
0: This is during that era where every movie she made, you can imagine that the pitch was, it's Private Benjamin and blank. And in this, it's Private Benjamin in Washington. She is a cocktail waitress who saves the life of a diplomat and ends up becoming a diplomat. It's a classic Goldie Hawn setup and wildly not funny. Look, A lot of hands were on the script. This was a Charles Shire, Nancy Myers script at one point. But Buck Henry got the final credit. You would assume it would be at least somewhat sharp about the way Washington works and the way power works. It is not. This there's almost no politics at all. OK, it doesn't have to be political. I don't need it to be tied to the real world politics of the moment, but it needs to have some real understanding of power and the way power works in order for her to be funny as the outsider who comes and reforms things. Instead, our government tries to sell her to an Arab, which gets real ugly and hard to laugh at very quickly, I thought.
1: Yeah. And, you know, in the for the first half hour it's just kind of like very sitcom it's like oh she's a goofy free-spirited cocktail waitress in the button-down world of washington and the establishment is aghast at her free-spiritedness and that's all fine but then once it starts getting into this this emir who's into her it's like ugh. by the way
0: were they fined by the screen actors guild for having both kenneth mars and kenneth mcmillan in one film because that's not legal is it
1: yeah, not only that, they're credited opening credits together. I'm like, well, Mars <laughs> Macmillan, what Mars and McMillan? What? A nice, nice performance by Gene Smart, who I know Drew loves. It's not even like aggressively bad. It's piffle.
0: It's it's piffle. Teflon. It'll slide right off. You won't even remember you saw it. This in City Heat, I had to go back in earlier today and just watch a few scenes because having watched them just over a month ago. They'd already started to slip out of my head again
1: let's move on to a little film i saw it when i was young for three specific reasons you know what drew
0: i'm gonna let you guess what are the three reasons that i like this movie as a kid uh because you were interested in alan parker nope over oh, for one already wow because you were interested in peter gabriel yep that's one and because you were interested in uh garrett brown and his steadicam Oh, God. No, no. (laughs) Good. Good. Those are two
1: good ones, though. No, the reason that I was into this film is because it has Peter Gabriel score, a Nicolas Cage performance, and it was shot in my beautiful hometown of Philadelphia. Drew, let us discuss Alan Parker's Birdie.
0: Dude. okay. so this is the opposite of protocol. This is a movie that as soon as I saw it, it just stuck. Put that on the poster. The opposite of protocol. I've always carried around with me is this special little thing that I love to share with people and show to people. And if you meet somebody who knows birdie, you got to love somebody who loves birdie, man.
1: Yeah. It's about two friends in 1960s, Philadelphia. Uh, one's kind of lives in his own world. Matthew Modine, uh, who's referred to as birdie, his loyal pal, Nicholas cage, who is uh, kind of a troublemaker, not a bad kid, but kind of a, uh, ne'er do well, if you will. And then they go to the Vietnam war then they realize what real trouble is. I just love this movie. I truly it's very do.
0: surreal in places.
1: Yeah, it has a real dreamlike quality in some of the bits. It gets really dark, but it's never too ugly. And it's the first score by Peter Gabriel. And this score is very reminiscent of that era of Peter Gabriel's music. Music.
0: Not just reminiscent, literally built out of like scraps and pieces, so there's it's crazy when you 're listening to it, and you go, "Wait, is that family snapshot? This is uh very much a consolidation of a lot of the musical ideas he was into at the moment,
1: and he would of course go on to score other films like uh Passion of the christ oh
0: the greatest score of all time you mean
1: Wow, this score is fantastic. what I really like about this movie is that it deals with some very serious and even scary themes and and moments, but man, it ends on such a beat.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Maybe in my top 10 endings of all time. And it's not just that the final shot is so brilliant. It announces to you in those closing seconds, what kind of movie you've actually been watching. It's so easy to put Alan Parker in a box. And yet his, the body of his work shows over and over it's a really tricky thing to do because there's so many different ideas and there's so many different tones and he's funny at times. He's really funny at times. And I don't think he often gets credit for that
1: based on a novel by William Wharton. And I didn't know this until I'd done my research, drew the novel is not about them going to the Vietnam war the novel is about them going to World War II. And there's stuff about
0: the film that feels like it is set in an earlier age when they're kids and they're growing up. It doesn't necessarily feel like it's set in the 70s or in the 60s. But I think Parker, the the world that he's created, the Philadelphia that he shoots in, I really love, and I think it's very dreamy, a big chunk of this movie because uh, Parker tried to find ways to create that point of view for birds. And they Did some really crazy experimental shooting. The film today would be so different. It would be so easy to do with drones and to make it everything Alan Parker had in his head. But you look at it here and, man, he wrestles these ideas up onto the screen. It's not simple, but it's beautiful.
1: Uh, The inventor of the Steadicam. Garrett Brown. Yeah. Created this thing, the SkyCam. This was elaborate back in the day, and it only worked half the time. But a few of the sequences that use this uh, so memorable,
0: so arresting. Yeah,
1: it's just a great movie. I really hope this is the movie that people take out of this episode.
0: Another thing that I want to say real quickly about Matthew Modine, I don't know that he necessarily gets the props he deserves coming out of this decade. We're entering a stretch now where time and time again, what you're going to hear us say is and Matthew Modine is great in this. It's the Jimmy Stewartness of him. It's that everyman thing. And I think it makes him more approachable than them and more relatable than them. But it also makes him, in some ways, a little bit harder to get your head around as a movie star.
1: Between this performance and Full Metal Jacket, he should have been getting Dustin Hoffman perform- level.
0: He's he's terrific. We're, there's a lot of other stuff we'll talk about that I think he's equally good in or even better in. But this is one of those moments that I, I really... I feel like people should pay attention and remember Modine was on fire in the eighties and this performance opposite cage, the both of them fantastic here. Yeah.
1: Would this have been the uh, biggest display of cages talent? I think so.
0: And this is also when he started to get the reputation as the method actor who would go to any length. He had teeth actually removed yes, for this read movie. Yes, I that.
1: He he literally had two teeth.
0: Oh yeah, and it changes the shape dentist. of his head. Like it's it makes a difference. There's a reason he did it, and it does pay off. He looks deformed. He definitely at this point started to really throw down, and you realized this guy is serious about this. If
1: you're one of our younger listeners, and you happen to mainly know Nicolas Cage as. Ah!
2: Fuckers! Fucker, fuck! Fuck Mexico! Horseshit. Hi,
1: fucking <laughs> That's all fine because that's all true. But watch this movie, and you'll start to get why people of our age and a bit younger got excited.
0: There was there was a period where it was exciting to see what every new film was going to be.
1: Now we'll move on to and this one will be easy. This is a light comedy about religion based on a stage play.
2: It's called. Mass Appeal. Father Timothy Farley knew how to teach a young man to be a priest. You must give a friendly sermon. Jesus is not impressed with pink hats and your cashmere coats and your blue hair. He'll are going out the back way today. He said that they should take care of their own souls and stop making so much money. Good for you. Shake them up. But he had no idea what he would learn from teaching. Jack Lemmon in Mass Appeal. Rated PG.
0: It feels very much like a play. I can imagine how this worked on stage. Jack Lemmon plays a older priest who has a huge congregation at a uh, Chicago church, and he's been there for years and everybody loves him. And so many actors, he would be smarmy and unlikable
1: because he is kind of playing the populist, kind of glad hander. Yeah. But with
0: Lemmon. You never once get that he is insincere or manipulative. No, you get why he would be able to be like that. You get why he would just... He's perfect. That's Lemon's gift. And I didn't really get it until I got older. Now I think Lemon is the patron saint of the pathetic. I think there is nobody who better encapsulates broken, hollow men who believe they are better than they are, who come to a moment of reckoning. And he gets humbled by a younger priest, a kid who is... Uh, At seminary school, he's not even a deacon yet. He's already challenging everybody. He stands up and challenges Lemon during a sermon. He gets assigned to Lemon's church, and Lemon's job is you're supposed to smooth the kid out and teach him how to do it. And instead, the kid wakes something up. And it works about the way you think it's going to. I was surprised by how progressive some of the conversations really were. I think Zelko Ivanek, who plays the younger priest, who everybody knows, this is one of those guys. Even if you don't know his name, you've seen him in five billion things. But here as a young man, I think he's really good with Lemon. I think he gives just as good as he gets. I think they're interesting together. It's not going to change anybody's world. It would have been a great Christmas movie to go see with the whole family because nobody would have been too upset at the end. But maybe it would have had a little bit of a conversation on the way home.
1: Well, Drew, I think that Mass Appeal is the kind of film that really coasts on the uh, quality of its star and character actors. And that is certainly true of our next film. Oh, yes. It is an early film in the directorial pantheon of the late Gary Marshall. I know it's a film that you
2: like. Does Scott like The Flamingo Kid? Matt Dillon delivers a performance unlike anything he's done previously. Seventeen Magazine. Two thumbs
0: up. Very
2: funny. At the movies. Welcome to the office. Flamingo, Jeffrey! An absolute charmer. Hi. The perfect gift, Us Magazine. The Flamingo Kid is by far the best and funniest work yet done by Matt Dillon, the New York Times. The Flamingo Kid, rated PG-13. Now playing at a selected theater near you.
0: This notoriously now we've pinned down is the first PG-13 movie, although it was released after a whole bunch of others that...
1: right. But for the sake of history, and we're going to put this to bed right now.
0: This was the first one that it was given to.
1: This is a movie in which Matt Dillon plays a cabana boy in a 1960s New York beach club. Potentially shady Richard Crenna, as a card shark, takes him under his wing and maybe gives him a job and gives him a way to move forward in his young life. But his father, as played by the amazing Hector Elizondo, tells him, be wary of his newfound mentor. And the Flamingo Kid almost starts to feel like a remake of Caddyshack.
0: It's Caddyshack if Harold Ramis had actually stuck the landing on the story about Danny Noonan. Yeah. I think Caddyshack is more entertaining just to watch as you put it on. And it's a crazy party. But you're you're right. I can see now where I think Caddyshack wanted the Danny Noonan story to work. A lot of period films feel like somebody ladled it on or like you bought it out of a box or it's a kit. This feels pretty authentic to me. I feel like the details here, the 60s that this presents, is the real early 60s. And I really like that about it. I like the world of this. What
1: I love about this movie is that a lot of like period pieces and, and nostalgia pieces get right, is that the politics of this silly beach club in New York In 1963, start to feel like the world. A gin rummy match between Richard Crenna and Hector Elizondo have now taken on epic stature.
0: Jessica Walter is terrific in it.
1: Oh, Fisher Stevens, uh, Marissa Tomei, Bronson Pinchot. Gary Marshall, obviously, coming off television, had any number of brilliant actors, veteran and new
0: this was part of ABC theatrical films. They were trying at that point to become a real contender as a theatrical force as well. And they had an early slate of stuff. It was like five or six movies that they announced. And two of them were Gary Marshall films. They clearly, Young Doctors in Love and this, had a lot of faith in Gary Marshall as a commercial force. And I think this is the one where he called his shot as a real filmmaker and not just a TV guy working on the big screen.
1: And I know that it has a small, not even cult, but let's just say it has a small, loyal following. So,
0: Well, I saw recently John August was bitching because he tried to find it for rental or purchase on streaming sites and couldn't. And it made him realize how many movies aren't out there or available readily. And it was really frustrating to him because he was like, isn't the Flamingo Kid considered a major movie? And... Yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah. If you love movies, and (laughs) if you love movies in general, then yeah, yeah, it's a major movie for a lot of reasons. But time hasn't necessarily put it on a pedestal, so it's kind of a little forgotten now.
1: If anybody out there happens to have a VHS copy of The Flamingo Kid, let us know. You can send it to Drew, and Drew can send it to John August.
0: There you go. Now,
1: Drew, let us move on to one of the most controversial, love it or hate it, David Lynch's
2: Dune Sons Of rival houses They were born To prove themselves Against each other The one who survives Will inherit Creation's Greatest treasure Dune Desert planet Dune rated PG-13 Starts Friday, December 14th at select theaters.
0: These next four films are all united by the fact that they took giant balls to make. This one, that book, it is the rocks filmmakers will keep crashing on over and over and over. And Drew, I have a question for you. Yeah. A simple question. Are some books unfilmable? Yes and no. Here's the film that answers that question both ways. Watchmen. Everything in Watchmen is the book, but it also kind of proves that that doesn't mean that you made a movie. You can just do all the events and it it still isn't a movie. And Dune, I'll give him this. He tried as hard as he could to figure out, considering he didn't even know what it was when they asked him if he wanted to adapt it. That's the part that blows my mind. It's not something that David Lynch carried around with him for 40 years. And I love this and I'm going to make this movie. And oh, my God, my opportunity's come. He didn't even know what it was. He had never read it when they offered it to him. This is a pretty faithful adaptation. Let's put it this way. Frank Herbert thought this was a pretty faithful adaptation. Frank Herbert thought this was his book.
1: I have seen large chunks of this movie throughout the years. I had never sat through it in one long sitting. And I say this with all due respect to the sci-fi fans and the general film fans who find something to love in this movie. This is one of the worst movies we've covered this year. I fucking hate this movie.
0: Wow. Okay. Well, we're definitely not on the same page at all about this. I don't love this movie. I think this movie has giant problems. And I think it's a movie that bounces off its source material in a lot of ways. I also think it's a movie of enormous beauty at times. I think it's a movie of huge ambition. And I think the things it does well are hypnotic to sit through. It's not an unwatchable film. It's an eminently watchable movie that sometimes doesn't care if you know what's going on or not.
1: It's a two-hour bus accident in slow motion watchable. Absolutely. It's long, ugly, indecipherable.
0: I don't think it's indecipherable, though. And and I actually prefer a world that drops you in and doesn't explain everything to you. You have to keep up. And the edit that exists, the theatrical edit of the film, is not the movie the way it should work. Clearly, this has been glad handed by somebody who was terrified that the movie didn't make any sense. They didn't need to have Virginia Madsen popping in from time to time to explain literally what you're looking at as you're looking at it. movie
1: has so much bigger problems than just glossing over some issues with some narration.
0: There's stuff that suggests that if they had just had some fucking faith in him and left him alone – There's beautiful stuff in this movie. There's sequences in this movie that are I'm not challenging. I'm honestly curious. What's beautiful in this film? I think the world itself. I think the world of Dune is beautiful. I think the the way they try to get to the sandworms, the sandworms don't totally work as an effect. But I think the sequence where Paul rides a sandworm for the first time is a cool sequence.
1: You got to dig through a lot of sweaty, ugly to get to that moment, man.
0: Well, it's, it's not just about moments. I think the world itself is beautiful. I think there's stuff in it that suggests that if they had just let him tell the story and not cut this down to a 122 minute version where you have literally people chalking over giant chunks of story and character, it might have worked. We'll never know. It's what exists now is a trailer for the movie that Lynch made. It's a bizarre experience.
1: I would be very curious to talk to, like, film fans who know nothing about the book, and and I could see how this would be like the Jupiter ascending of 1984, where some people are like, what the fuck am I
0: watching? And other people are like, well, it's weird as shit and I'm down with it, and other people who just read the book. And When you talk about what's beautiful, I find the opening sequence, I think the Navigator, the Space Navigator, is one of the coolest fucking creatures in any movie in the 80s, and I love the sequence where it's talking to the Emperor, and it's telling him, you're going to do this, this is the way this works, and you're going to kill him, because we want it, because we're terrified of him. I love that scene, and I think he's haunting first and weird. the scene
1: in the movie. It is the first scene in the movie, and it is. The, the production design in that sequence of alone is staggering it is but it just seems like a disconnected series of lofty sci-fi moments that are completely unrelated to each other actors given dialogue they don't have any idea what they're saying and they don't really care they're just told that this is a big film
0: and here's your check Here's what they didn't get right. And here's the only way Dune ever works is a theatrical experience. We've seen the story before about you're going to become the Messiah or you're going to become the, the leader of whatever. You're going to become the chosen one. And this is the process of you becoming the chosen one and stepping into your fate and all of that. But what makes Dune special is when the book Dune ends... And Paul Atreides becomes Paul Muad'Dib and he becomes the god emperor of Dune and he is now anointed. What he realizes is he's now the bad guy in charge of an army that's going to ruin everything. And that's what it doesn't land. That's the punch that Dune ultimately is built to deliver. And if you don't get that right, then none of the rest of it is anything except a lot of empty world building.
1: What I love about this movie is something that I love about lots of big epic movies, good or bad is playing spot the awesome. And in this movie, you can spot...
0: Kenneth McMillan as the unbelievable Baron Harkonnen, the grossest villain of all time.
1: Gross is not... See, and here's... That kind of touches on one of the things that I don't like about this movie. Okay, I get that this character has to be not only vile, but physically vile. So we see the extent of what the spice has done to him. Then the movie cuts to like six or seven other really ugly things. You need a balance. It can't always be oppressively ugly. And
0: this movie is just a lot of ugly. To me, those are the details that either do or don't make something like this live and breathe. And I see all the stuff that he's doing to make it work, which is why I can't just dismiss it.
1: Fair disclaimer is that even with his great films, I'm often at arm's length with David Lynch. He leaves me cold even at his best movies. Drew, is this one of the only films that we've ever seen that would hand you a small glossary before you walked in?
0: Yep. I remember opening night, this and another giant science fiction movie opened at the same time, and uh, I literally, my friend, this was the theater that he worked at, we stood outside and watched. People would walk up, buy a ticket for Dune, they would push the glossary over to them, and they'd look at it, and then change tickets. You could see it dying as people looked at that piece of paper a crazy thing to do yeah
1: true you you mentioned that people would uh, potentially pass on their ticket for dune and opt for a different sci-fi film what would that be
2: something is about to happen there's something down there something incredible it's four stars something unforgettable something what's gonna happen something wonderful 2010, the year we make contact, rated PG.
1: I really like this movie. Yeah, I'm a big fan. Uh, I saw saw this in 84 and it bored me to tears, but that meant nothing because I was like 12 or 13 and I wanted action. I grew up knowing that 2001 was considered a classic of science fiction, but since I was young, I wasn't necessarily into the slow burn or the metaphysical or the subtext or the lofty concepts. So if you thought 2001 was just a little too avant-garde, esoteric, call it what you will, 2010 is much more literal, but it still retains a little bit of that wonder.
0: You had to be crazy to make a sequel to 2001. Crazy, flat out insane. And what's really remarkable about it is how close he gets to getting it all right. It works very much as an extension of 2001 that doesn't try to be 2001 at all. The big thing about 2001 was, as an experience, there was no cliff notes handed out, so you pretty much had to decide what you thought happened. And there were huge arguments about the ending of 2001, about even what events took place. Well, if you have any questions, they're answered in about the first three minutes of 2010. Uh, Yeah, uh, they encountered the thing, and he went inside the monolith, and then he was inside the monolith, and then he vanished. So that's it. That's all that happened. Thanks. Thanks. I remember sitting in the theater. I don't know how I feel about that. And the film then plays out and ultimately isn't married to any of what you hear in that prologue. The film is its own thing and the film kind of does its own thing. And I really love the fact that he went so far out of his way to try to reproduce the exact production design of 2001. So it does feel like you're stepping back into that movie once you finally get there.
1: And if any hardcore sci-fi fans out there feel like this is some kind of uh, bastardization or betrayal, you should know that writer-director Peter Hyams had the blessing of not only Arthur C. Clarke, but Stanley Kubrick as well.
0: And actually, there's a a book that I wanted to mention to you that I read. When they were in pre-production on this, Arthur C. Clarke lived in Sri Lanka, didn't really want to travel. And when he and Kubrick had made 2001, they worked together nonstop. And Clarke lived in London for a while, and they were pretty much together every day. He knew it wasn't going to be the same situation on this film. Instead, he wrote the book and then handed it off to Peter Hyams with the idea that, look, I'll weigh in. If you have a question, I'll answer it. But it's your thing. You go make the movie. They started corresponding with Clark staying in Sri Lanka and Hyams working in Los Angeles. And this was the early days of computers being in your home. Arthur C. Clarke had one. There was one at the MGM office, and they would send script pages and emails, early emails back and forth. There's even a preface to this book where Arthur C. Clarke says, at this point, we call it electronic mail, although I'm not sure that name will stick. And he decided to take all the correspondence between the two of them during pre-production and then just publish it as a paperback. So that book is called The Odyssey File, and it's just the Peter Hyams, Arthur C. Clarke conversations. What? Do you think the hardest design element in the movie is they couldn't figure it out from the beginning of pre-production until almost two weeks before they stopped shooting when they finally said, all right, this is how we're going to do it. Let's go. What do you think that thing was that drove them crazy all during production? The monolith? The Dolphin House. Oh, what? For some reason, Arthur C. Clarke had visited a dolphin house, a house that was like that, where somebody was working on a dolphin project and they had actual dolphins in the home and it was in Hawaii and he visited that and it was in his head. So he wrote it into the script and then... They went and they saw it and it was not being used anymore and it was not safe for use anymore and nobody would approve use of dolphins in it. And then they started trying to design one and it was this nightmare. And the funniest element of the whole book is they're doing spacewalks and they're building Jupiter and they're doing monoliths and they've got the air breaking sequence. They're designing these giant, unbelievable special effects that I think still really hold up. They're gorgeous. But it was, I think, indicative of the fact that Himes was so worried about getting Arthur C. Clark and Stanley Kubrick to say, this is right. I can't believe the amount of work he did. And hats off because the effect sequences he built are magnificent.
1: Oh, This movie was nominated for five Oscars, and a lot of them were for effects. As a mature kind of sci-fi adventure, it works. As a sequel to 2001, surprisingly, it works. There's a really cool idea in this movie, and it would not be a prevalent one throughout the 80s, unfortunately, and it would be that Americans and Russians could work together for a common goal. It's a cooperation mission in the middle of the Cold War, and kudos to the filmmakers for trying to, like, you know, mend some fences
0: in sci-fi. And that's Clark as well. Clark was very smart about the fact that the, the idea that contact was something beyond us would finally make kind of the the problems that we have here seem small. And I think that that's very much what this is about. My other favorite thread in this is I love the relationship between Bob Balaban and Hal. The way this film builds to Hal having to make a human choice, it's one of the great reinventions of a character and it's one of my favorite hero moments from the 80s and one of the weirdest. I love it.
1: It is. You do, there's so many ways for that scene to go. And it really just goes in a very satisfying way. I love him.
0: I love Hal in this movie.
1: I love the little touches of humanity. Uh, there's a the scene early when they're about to go through their air breaking. And this young uh, Russian woman who's clearly terrified and doesn't can't communicate with Roy Scheider at all. And she just. Just
0: any two people holding each other while you might die. It's, yeah, it's very amazing.
1: touching. Uh, Helen Mirren. Fantastic.
0: Yeah, and Elia Baskin, who we saw in Moscow and the Hudson, uh, I think is great here as John Lithgow's Russian buddy, Douglas Rain. Kier Delay. Yeah, I think in particular seeing Bowman back and seeing how creepy it is that he basically looks identical is effective. And again, they don't overdo it. It's not like the entire movie is Bowman. I really like the the use of "My God, it's full of stars" as a sort of running motif. I really like the ending of this movie. And look, a lot of movies have swung for this. Day the Year Stood Still and The Abyss later in the decade. I like the way this one lands that punch. I get why people dismiss it, but it's better than it should be.
1: So we're just going to move on to our next film.
2: We have no segue from 2010 to David Lean's final film. Columbia Pictures presents A Passage to India. Winner of 11 Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture, Best Director, David Lean, Best Actress, Judy Davis, Best Supporting Actress, Peggy Ashcroft, Best Screenplay Adaptation, David Lean. Winner, Best Picture of the Year, New York Film Critics Circle, and National Board of Review, A Passage to India, rated PG.
0: My favorite movie is Lawrence of Arabia. I will go ahead and fess up now. I had always had this on a shelf as one of those, I will get to this on a rainy day movie. Uh, I got to it on a rainy day. It's a very dense piece of work. I am not fascinated by the British Raj. I don't really get the romantic attraction to the idea of British occupied India as a period that we keep going back to storytelling wise. E.M. Forrester is one of the most British of British writers. This was his attempt to grapple with the responsibility of what England did to India, whether or not they should have ever done it, and what damage they left behind. It's a lot to take in, and it really will depend on how much of the British Raj stuff you are interested in. How intrigued are you by that time period and by what happened there?
1: It is about a um, a British woman who accuses an Indian man of attempted rape, while the two of them are in a, exploring a cave together. Law enforcement and the attorneys and the families and friends all getting involved and taking sides. Will it lead to exoneration or justice or violence? It's a fascinating movie in a lot of ways. But my main question, Drew, and I cannot fathom this, I've been thinking about it since I watched the movie. This movie got 11 Oscar nominations, and Victor Banerjee was not one of those 11. Wow! Consistently, whenever this movie starts to get too dowdy or too dry, his performance livens it up in remarkable fashion. Well,
0: he does a really great job of humanizing what it felt like trying to navigate this world where the British are essentially the ruling class. You have to keep them happy and entertained, and you have to keep yourself in their good graces. There has to be a hatred that is brewing because they shouldn't be there. And he plays all of that. I get it all from him. I think he is so good that I get most of what I think the film is trying to say from his work. I think it's a lot of movie. And I think that this is more of a travel log, David Lean, than I necessarily love. I love the sweeping scale of Lawrence of Arabia, but I don't love it because I'm just looking at pictures of the desert. And this feels like a lot of this movie is... Here's India.
1: One thing that's great throughout, she she vanishes a bit late in the film, but for the first hour and a half, Judy Davis gives one of the best performances you'll see this year. She's fantastic. And I'm watching her and I'm thinking, in another universe, Judy
0: Davis had Meryl Streep's career. She's perfect for this because she is somebody who you feel like might break. There's something brittle about her, but there's also a flinty strength and she's also interesting and funny. And There's so many ways that she could have made this you know, a British
1: woman, well, a clearly wealthy, moving coming to India to meet with her potential fiance. So many ways you could have just made her snooty and occasionally oh, nice. Sure. She seems a little fragile. She seems a little nervous, but she also seems... Very nice.
0: <laughs> no, I'm, I'm a big Judy Davis fan, but I think that prickly, brittle quality is one of the reasons that she wasn't huger, but it's what makes her so dynamic. Peggy Ashcroft as well is terrific in the film, and I love the early stuff between her and Victor Banerjee. I think that their early scenes are super charming and interesting, and I wish I loved it. I wish that I had fallen in love with it because of David Lean. My biggest problem is that I don't think Lean is as anti-British Raj as Forrester was. Oh, OK. okay. To me, there's some, some sense that Lean is simply showing you what it was, whereas I think Forrester was more openly critical and pointed about it. And so the film to me feels like it never quite knows if it's lacerating.
1: Yeah, I admire it very much. Didn't really connect with me on a personal level, but I think it's an admirable film. Definitely worth seeing. And I can see why it got so many Oscar nominations. Now, Drew, let us move on to a film that struggled through a horrific production. If you consider stuff like uh, rampant drug abuse and a murder and a court case, a horrible production, let us break down Francis Ford Coppola's The Cotton Club.
2: In The Godfather, he showed you a way of life. In The Cotton Club, Francis Coppola shows you the era where it all began. The Dutchman shouldn't be taken too lightly. His rackets are very appealing to me. Their names were Dutch, Oni, Mad Dog, and Mr. Luciano. New York was their kingdom. This was their playground, The Cotton Club. From Orion Pictures, be there when this legend is born. Rated R.
0: Now playing at theaters everywhere. It's interesting that you preface it that way, because that is the way it's been prefaced since 1984. Robert Evans and the murder and the court case and all that other stuff has nothing to do with the movie. So let's talk about the movie first. It's four or five different movies, and there's one movie that makes no sense, which is the Richard Gere movie. The entire idea of making a movie about a white jazz player, and the movie's called The Cotton Club, is fucking bonkers. You're just crazy. No white people played the Cotton Club. That's just not what happened. Even trying to put one in there is just stupid. It's a stupid idea. Having said that, I think the Richard Gear storyline is entertaining just as a storyline. If you remove it from the Cotton Club, I really enjoy all that stuff. The entire idea of a guy who saves the life of a gangster and then little by little, just starts to take the good pieces of the gangster and become lucky because of it, I like that. And I think the relationship between he and James Remar as Dutch Schultz is fun. And I think Remar, choose scenery as Dutch Schultz. Gregory frickin' Hines. I could watch Gregory Hines and his brother tap dance for 10 hours. (laughs) I mean, does it? It's amazing. And the give and take between them on stage, it can really only happen if they had grown up together because there is a unspoken beautiful synchronicity to their movements. And they're awesome to watch There's my God. also
1: a dance sequence that's just like towards the end of the film, you could easily just take out of the movie and it wouldn't matter. And it's just a bunch of old guys and some young guys who have been dancing together for decades and they all just start jamming.
0: It's the shit, man. It's because it, he takes, yeah, he takes his girl to a club where it's just old tap dancers. And in order to be in that club, you got to have moves. So they all get up and demonstrate and oh, there is so much of this movie that I really thoroughly enjoy. I think every scene between Fred Gwynn and Bob Hoskins is solid gold. There's a scene involving a watch between the two of them that is one of my favorite movies of 1984. Just that scene. It's also a reminder. Fred Gwynn, wildly underrated asset.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah you ever want to talk about like the double-edged sword of being in an iconic television show is I love Fred Gwynn. Nicholas Cage is in this movie. What, what stereotype side character part does he get through?
0: Oh, he's the crazy gangster kid brother. This is a movie where they're all playing tropes and types and they're all playing um, the surface of gangster movies. And it's very much a throwback and I'm okay with it because they know what they're doing. This, this feels to me very much like he got right all the stuff he was trying to do on one from the heart. There is a cut of this movie that he did a couple of years ago that, for whatever reason, it's just nobody's putting it out on home video. Nobody sees any worth or any merit in putting it out. And it's crazy because Coppola paid to restore it. He did it himself. He put musical sequences back. There's a whole uh, Stormy Weather musical number with Lynette McKee that is legendary that he put back. It's available to be shown, but there's no home video release scheduled and nobody's showing it. It blows my mind because I think there's so much that is so entertaining here that if there's a version of this that he thinks works better, I'm in. I want to see that version. Diane Lane. She's decent in this movie. Nominated for a Razzie
1: for this movie.
0: Yeah, it's it, that's not fair. She's fine. It's the the role is a little thin, but and she basically exists to get pushed around by Dutch Schultz, but it's not Razzie worthy. That's mean. Yeah, fuck them. It's a beautifully photographed movie. If you could see the Blu ray version of this thing, uh, just Steven Goldblatt's photography, there is some stuff with Diane Lane that uh, there's a great scene where she and Richard Gere are together and it's all shot with uh, sort of lace and filters and there's blue light on him and yellow light on her. And it looks like something out of a Wong Kar Way film for a few minutes. It's a grab bag. It is. That's a w- good way to put it. it, it ha- half the stuff
1: works great, half the stuff doesn't work all that great, but it's gone quickly. So there we go. Cotton Club.
0: Hey, Scott, what was the very first screenplay I ever read?
1: Uh, well, just based on the sequence of the notes that we have in front of me, I'm going to guess that it was Gideon and Evans, Starman. The people of Earth invited him,
2: but never dreamt he'd come. Greetings. You better let her go, pal. I'll give you some greetings. We prepared questions, but we never ready for the answers. And now that he is here, he doesn't want to hurt anybody. Just leave him alone. Do we dare let him live? John Carpenter's Starman,
0: the science fiction love story rated PG. This is exciting. I'm really happy to finally be here. What's your experience with this movie, man?
1: I saw Starman in the middle of my John Carpenter phase. Oh, and that phase lasting from about 1978 to present. Obviously, as a 13 or 15 year old kid, I didn't care about the romantic theme of the film like an adult would. But just as a road movie, that's where I think Starman shines and is fairly underappreciated. It's a great
0: road movie. I concur. I think it works really well just as two people in a car. God bless Karen Allen, who is terrific in this.
1: Talk for one quick second how at the time and maybe even
0: today, this was
1: uh, dismissed as nothing more than a simple E.T. knockoff, which it was not.
0: And not only was it not a knockoff, they were literally developed at the same time. This was at Universal, and this was a Universal film originally, and uh, E.T. was originally developed as the sequel to Close Encounters. And there was a trade that was made between the two studios, and they literally traded those two properties. And it's interesting that E.T. and The Thing have such a close relationship in terms of it's always been perceived that E.T. is the movie that killed The Thing. And then Carpenter goes and makes this. I do think that this is John's way of telling a grown-up version of that kind of thing and showing, yeah, I got that in me too. And one of the things that's really remarkable about this is how resolutely it stands apart from the movies around it in his filmography. It doesn't feel like any of them. It doesn't really play like any of them. It's sweeter. It's a very different John. And yet, I would argue it's very much a John Carpenter movie. It looks like his work. It... Uh, The small town stuff is his. This movie, um, I love this movie, but more than that, I owe this movie everything. I really I can't say that strongly enough. I don't know who I would be if this movie hadn't been made. I had a buddy whose mom did extras casting and she only did it for commercials and television normally. A couple of movies had come through Chattanooga and come through that area where we lived. And she had done a couple of films. So she did The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia. And then she got word that there was another movie coming through. I went over there one afternoon and she said, oh, yeah, this one, um, the guy who's directing this, do you know who John Carpenter is?
2: <laughs>
0: and I lost my mind. I was <laughs> like, holy crap.
1: That's like asking a Christian kid if she knows who Santa Claus is.
0: Yeah. So she realized how excited I was. And she talked to my mom she asked the production if I could visit the set when they came to town. And then three days before I was supposed to go, I broke my arm and my parents were like, you probably shouldn't go. And I was like, yeah, listen, um, you're going to find an empty bed if you tell me no, because I'm going. I got my fresh cast on and I got driven out to the hotel, which they were using as a location. So having just watched the film again, you know, the scene where they have sort of an accident with a truck driver. And the guy gets out and Starman uses one of the spheres to blow up a telephone pole. And then they get back in the car and they drive away and the guy reports them to the cops. And he set his tire iron on fire. So that's the scene that I was there for. And they were shooting that just on the side of some road. And they drove me from the hotel, which was base camp, out to the location. On the way out, I was talking with the uh, unit publicist, the guy named Peter Silberman, who. Didn't know what he was doing really it was like just doing this as a favor for this crazy lady that did extras casting. And then as we're driving out there and I'm talking about, so originally this was supposed to be Brian De Palma, right? And then, uh, and that was when it was at universal and then I went over to the Columbia and then this one and the AT went over to universal. And he's like, what, who, what are you? Who are you? So by the time we got out to the actual location, He was entertained, and he walked me up right up to Carpenter, and he was like, hey, John, you should talk to this. He's crazy, and put me right there in the middle of it. And over the course of the day, Jeff Bridges and Karen Allen and John Carpenter all took the time to not just talk to me, but to actually answer questions about the filmmaking. Um, Karen Allen sat with my mom, and and we chatted for a good hour about Raiders. Years and years and years later, I was on a set visit for uh, Evolution. And I'm walking onto the set, and the unit publicist is there to greet me. And he turns around, and it's Peter Silberman. And he burst into tears, and so did I. And uh, I told him, You know, you were so nice to me. The idea that some kid in Tennessee, there's no reason to be that kind to them. Carpenter, the idea that I got to work with him. It wasn't just special because I loved his work. It was special because he said yes first. And he said, this is possible. So this movie, I, I look at it, I can't even see the movie. I see the experience and I see those people being so kind. And I love it unreservedly.
1: great story, and let me tell you something, the people who believe that proverb, never meet your heroes, that's bullshit.
0: Yeah, meet them.
1: I would say that's right about half the time, but if you get a chance to meet your hero and you say no, that'll probably haunt you. <laughs> so... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and how nice, how nice for genre fans to look back and realize that, uh, I mean, of course, we'll get uh, Sigourney Weaver in two years. She'll be nominated for Aliens. But how nice to remember that Jeff Bridges was nominated for Starman. Nominated, Man. yes. And not not only is he great as an alien who is slowly learning to look and act like a human, that he is fantastic. But let us not take anything away from Karen Allen. She has the infinitely harder job. She has to slowly convince the audience that she would somehow fall in love. Again,
0: yeah, again.
1: And she does. By an, by an hour and 15 minutes into this movie, you're like, yeah, I, I buy anything. If she sleeps with him, if she leaves with him, if she is in love with him, if she dies for him, I buy all of that.
0: Her smile is the best special effect in the film. She's pretty terrific.
1: This might be... My favorite Karen Allen. I think
0: think it's the best performance she's ever given. She's terrific.
1: Karen Allen deserved a much bigger career, but boy, we will get back to her charm in Scrooged. And I'm looking forward to that. When you needed a likable nerd at this stage of sci-fi, you would get Bob Balaban or or (laughs) Charles Martin Smith. And man, he makes some choices in this movie that I love.
0: He's hilarious. He's having so much fun. It's a great performance, and he makes that person feel like a person as opposed to just a plot device. And that's really all of it, man. That's what it takes in these movies.
1: Touches on that one issue that we have on every sci-fi film going back to the 50s. The government guy who is on the trail and doggedly chasing the alien invader might be officious. He might be short-sighted, but he would mostly be
0: fascinated cuz that's the job he chose. Yeah, cuz he's a scientist. He's yeah, that's the thing. Uh, they definitely get that part right. And I I do love the the evolution that he has in the movie. It's uh but it's really a two-person show, I think for the most part. You you remember them at the end and they are terrific in it.
1: All right. Now we're going to close this episode with very simple what a star vehicle is. And in many cases, a star vehicle is kind of funny but falls apart because it is just there for one person to shine however in the case of the 1980s few star vehicles stand out like beverly hills
2: eddie murphy is a detroit cop on vacation in beverly hills how you doing we have six witnesses that say you broke in and started tearing up the place then jumped out the window i'm on vacation Murphy. Beverly Hills Cop. Rated R. Starts Wednesday, December 5th at a theater
0: near you. This is the moment where Eddie Murphy became the biggest movie star of the 80s, period. Oh, yeah. You know, I just rewatched it two days ago, and it is ridiculously confident. Here's why I ultimately think this connected and turned him into the star that he deserved to be. It's because Martin Brest is the real deal. I truly believe Martin Brest is the guy who built the right playground for him. If he doesn't surround him with the right actors, if he doesn't find the right people for him to bounce off of, if he doesn't build a place where Eddie can improvise in a way that is structured and actually still is character and that contribute, like all of that is a skill set. And Martin Brest is coming off of going in style. He is no slouch. This isn't the typical Simpson-Bruckheimer commercial jerk. That I think that's important. Yeah, there are several
1: movies that we'll get to uh, later in the decade in which Eddie Murphy in most moments are legitimately is legitimately funny, but the rest of the movie is just cardboard and paper. It's nothing. This movie has supporting characters and subplots and themes that make it more than just a
0: showcase for the very funny Eddie Murphy. I, I love John Ashton and Judge Reinhold. They're great. John Ashton, you can't say enough good about him in this. He's Awesome. And he's one of the keys to making it work because he begrudgingly begins to respect Axel. His gradual shift on Axel is the film's arc. Billy is 100% on board from from frame one, and that's kind of delightful in its own way, is just the way Judge Reinhold is charmed and entertained by Axel and never once questions him. But man, I love Ashton. He's the grown up in the room and he's really good at it.
1: He comes from Detroit, and in some great early sequences, we see. What, what Detroit looks like. And when it goes to L.A., we get Axel Foley's culture shock, but it's never, it's it's mocking L.A. in a lot of ways, and it's shallow or it's silly looking in some ways, but... It's not the Beverly
0: Hillbillies. He's not a rube who doesn't know how a door works.
1: Right. The the cops are not used to, like, the kind of crime that they're used to in Detroit, but they're not bumbling dummies either. No,
0: not at all. And I really like Ronnie Cox in this. <laughs>
1: yo, yo, you know who's an even better authority figure... Uh, the, the sergeant in Detroit who says that the mayor chewed all his ass out.
0: Oh, Gilbert Hill, Inspector Todd. Inspector Todd is the best.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. Thank you, Gilbert R Hill. Thank you. And and he's just, he's walking away, and he says, "You still got a little bit of ass left." There.
0: <laughs> one of my one of the lines. It's funny how you know, as movie nerds, I think you do this, I do this. A lot of my friends do. You pick up little lines or little bits of movies, and they enter your vernacular and with your friends or your private language. There is constantly when I would get interrupted doing something that I probably should have been doing by my friend Scott. My line was always, "This is not my locker." <laughs> right it works in
1: any context oh That's one of Paul. my favorite
0: it's such a great little Paul Reiser moment
1: <laughs> yeah he doesn't uh do much in the film he's mainly in it early but he has two or three real good chuckle moments uh what what do you think of um we don't see much of her throughout the 80s but what do you I think she's solid in this what do you think of Lisa Eilbacher
0: as uh Axel's Old girl. It's it's funny. She's utterly forgot when you talk about this. And then when you watch the movie again, she's in pretty much the whole film. She is right there in the middle of most of the action. She's right there in uh, a lot of the big sequences. She's a major character.
1: Like most Bruckheimer uh, Simpson productions, this one is a character actor dream. uh, In addition to the aforementioned Paul Reiser and the infamously funny Bronson Pinchot as Serge. Uh, we also have uh, Ronnie Cox as the Lieutenant Bogomil, the long-suffering. We have the evil Stephen Burkhoff. He's great. And James Russo has a moment where he gets slapped by the awesome Jonathan Banks. And he shows like an, a, a rawness and a weakness that I never have seen in James Russo before. He's almost always tough and bombastic, even when he's getting killed and stabbed. He's fantastic in this movie. It's a very small role, but kudos to James Russo in this movie. I like him a lot.
0: And yes, everybody knows that this was at one point a Sylvester Sloan film, and it was a very last minute, quick decision to make it a Eddie Murphy movie. And they we're rewriting constantly. It's invisible. What's really nuts is the structure of the film was sound. So then it simply became a tone switch. They really had to figure out how to tweak tone.
1: And no offense to Stallone. He's done a lot of fun movies, but he would not have made this movie. No, no. And he
0: said like uh, his movie probably would have looked more like Cobra. He said that his movie was a straight action film. And the move to make it funny instead of action is so brilliant. And Eddie, I don't really buy Eddie in the action. I'm willing to go with it. I don't really buy that Eddie Murphy's flipping people over. And OK, sure, for the sake of the film, I'll roll with it. But that's not what makes it work. It's he's Bugs Bunny. He is the ultimate rascally rabbit who nobody can lay a finger on, who is four steps ahead at all times. One of my favorite little things in the movie is when he's asking for the bananas that he's going to put in the tailpipe and it's Damon Wayans who's giving them oh, him. Oh,
1: that is just, and you would talk about like Bronson Pinchot and Damon Wayans in literally one scene
0: apiece. <laughs> what makes me laugh so hard is Damon looks at him and it's clear that he knows what's about to happen. And he's like, that's pretty good. I like it. Go ahead. And I love that there is a whole subclass of people in this movie who are watching Axel Foley do stuff who are like, good, you go do that. To understand just how precarious a tone is. In a few years, when we see Beverly Hills Cop 2, we're going to see exactly what you don't do. It's remarkable as a one-two punch.
1: Aside from the fact that Axel Foley is a funny person, everything else in this movie is a serious movie. It's a cop movie. It's a conventional movie, but it is a revenge story, a cop story. It is a a fish out of water story, but that's not inherently funny. Everything other than the fact that Axel
0: Foley is a funny man, everything else is pretty serious. And that's what makes it so much fun. That's what I mean by breast. It feels like he took everything seriously. And so Axel works. I also got to say, this is a case of, can you imagine this movie with any other score. <laughs> T- to me, I hear that music and I'm like, ooh, I hope somebody breaks into a warehouse. Ooh, I hope somebody razzes the authorities.
1: It's like the Henry Mancini rule of, yeah, it's not just his theme. It's that sounds like someone furtively walking around the corner and being a wise ass. That's what that score sounds
0: like. It is truly one of the highlights of music as character in the decade. It's so weird that this was a radio hit, that Axel F just became a thing you heard on the radio all the time. Beverly Hills Cop, this is one of those movies people went back to over and over and over. It was a gigantic monster hit. Like you can't, again, if you weren't there, when I say it was a big hit, you you think of big hits right now where they're out for three weeks and it's number one for three weeks. No, no, no. This was number one for 14 weeks. This was number one for three or four months. Months. It's iconic for a reason. And watching them chase it in the years since, uh, whether it be things that were imitations of it or whether it be the sequels or, dude, I saw the pilot for the television show that Barry Sonnenfeld directed where it was about Axel's son coming to Los Angeles and it was Brandon Jackson. This is the desperate, awful, ghoulish, pick-the-bones version of Hollywood by the time they get to that. But I understand because at the time, Beverly Hills Cop was the biggest goddamn thing you'd ever seen. And as great as John Ashton is
1: in this movie, he's not even the best performance of the decade. Wait till we get to Midnight Run. No,
0: don't even start.
1: All right. Well, thank you, guys. That is... 1984 wrapped up. We will be back next week with our 1984 official wrap up, which will include the Oscar winners, the box office and my Andrew's favorite films of the year. I love every listener. I love every patron. Thank you.
0: Uh, Those of you who are already Patreon supporters, I hope you are enjoying the bonus content we provide for you. If you are not, and you like this podcast, Uh, It's a whole different show, and I would advise you to give it a try for even just one month. It's so much fun, and I love what we're doing over there. Uh, We will be back in two weeks for our end of the season best of episode, and that's pretty much it. You know the drill. Be here in two weeks to see if we come anywhere close to agreeing about what made 1984 so memorable.